just a, just a two-minute um, review as you're getting that uh, handout, uh, because we're doing uh, four scenes in the life of Jesus today that, um, in a sense, are a tutorial in the psychology, you might say, of scapegoating. So scapegoat theory would say that our advanced capacity for imitation as human beings, that we imitate not just external gesture, but even internal states like desire, leads us to increased rivalries and increased violence. So um, early humans stumbled on an unconscious mechanism to contain this um, rivalry, um, violence thing that happens in human groups. Um, and what would happen with this mechanism is there would be a, an accusation lodged against a um, vulnerable person or maybe smaller group within the larger group that would spread by the process of imitation almost in, unconsciously. And... Um, the majority would turn into a mob um, unless there were enough people to resist what was going on. And the, the mob would then expel the innocent person or group uh, who was thought to be guilty, and that would lead to this remarkable peace. It would kind of resolve everyone's internal conflicts temporarily until they arose again and there was another need for a scapegoating event. So. Uh, maybe obviously oppression of all kinds is rooted in the scapegoat mechanism. It's, oppression is fueled by accusation. Um, and often these accusations are, they're like embedded in our, in our society. They're embedded in our culture, the stereotypes we have about different groups. Like the very persistent idea that black men are more dangerous than white men, despite all the evidence. A very persistent thing. It's actually kind of crept into the psychology of virtually every American. Or um, false narratives that, that uh, women know that you're, you labor under all the time. Uh, false narratives that minorities are struggling against. And all of this process of oppression really is part of this escape mechanism to like stabilize groups a majority at the expense of a minority so from the beginning of Jesus public ministry Jesus was um, in line with the Hebrew prophets and the stories that he inherited um, from his tradition he was also unmasking the scapegoat mechanism, which was largely unconscious. And he did that to degrade it and to call us to abandon it and to offer an alternative way of living. So there are four scenes early in the Gospel of Luke that I want to um, kind of breeze through today. Um, Luke chapter um, 3 is the baptism of Jesus. The first half of Luke chapter 4 is the encounter with the accuser in the wilderness. And then the second half of chapter 4 of Luke is the rejection of Jesus by his village. And then uh, a little bit later in Luke chapter 8, we have uh, a family rejection experience. So together, this is kind of an introduction to the psychology of scapegoating 101 as it's revealed in Jesus' own experience. So the baptism of Jesus in, in Luke 3, 21 to 23, the setting is John the Baptist has emerged as like the first uh, publicly recognized prophet to come to Israel in a long time, like maybe 300 years had been a great like um, drought of publicly recognized 
prophets like Elijah and others. And John is, is doing his work not in the temple, like in the seat of power or in Jerusalem, the capital city, but out in the wilderness where Israel first becomes the people of God and where the work of the Spirit is often uh, begun. New works of the Spirit are often begun out in the wilderness. John's message, he was proclaiming a baptism of the heart's transformation for the forgiveness of sins. He was just doling out freely to all comers through, through the rite of baptism, dipping people in water. So let's read uh, Jesus as he comes forward for... Um, the rite of baptism under John's ministry. And it happened that when all the people were being baptized and Jesus had been baptized and he was praying, heaven was opened and the Spirit, the Holy One, descended in the corporeal form, the bodily form of a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, you are my son, the beloved, in you I have delighted. So this, this version of the baptism is from the experience of Jesus. You, it's what he heard, what he felt when he was baptized. Um, but there's a follow-up verse that's very important, and it says this, and when he set out, Jesus was himself about 30 years old, being the son, so it was supposed of Joseph. And then we have a long genealogy that's traced through the through the father line as was typical in that in that period. So it was supposed is that's significant because it's an allusion to a status that Jesus carried with him which was called the Mamser status. And this was a form actually of moral or even you would say sexual stigma that was attached to the fact that uh, Jesus' paternity was in dispute. Like it was known publicly in their, t in their hometown of Nazareth. We're talking about maybe 400 people that Joseph, perhaps, was not the father of Jesus. And so that set all sorts of rumors going around. And Jesus carried that stigma. So today, we, you know, we call those outside societal norms on either sexuality or gender queer. And so you could actually say there are grounds for saying Jesus suffered from a form of stigma that was at least analogous to that in his time. This phrase, the voice from heaven, there was a voice from heaven as Jesus was being baptized that conveyed this message to him. Um, you know, we've been using Amy Jill Levine, who is a Orthodox Jewish scholar of the New Testament. She's an Orthodox Jew, not a, a, not a Christian, um, but she's a, a student of the Second Temple period, the time when Jesus um, did his ministry, and of the Gospels in particular. And she says that behind the Greek of this phrase, voice from heaven, so the New Testament was written in Greek largely, and the Older Testament was written in Hebrew. She says behind this Greek phrase, the voice of, from heaven is likely a phrase signifying the divine feminine presence. Um, and the Hebrew term is bat kal, or Q-O-L. It means the daughter of the voice. Uh, you know, um, you went to your Jewish friends, uh, bar mitzvahs for the boy, bat mitzvahs for the daughters, bat is daughter, daughter, kal of the voice. 
And the bat kal in the Hebrew tradition was like a special divine communication of the spirit. There, there sometimes this word is translated uh, thunder, thunderclap, which is interesting. I think it's in Mark's gospel where the baptism occurs and Jesus hears a voice, but they, they say the bystanders thought it thundered. So there's a this real interesting thing going on here. There's a very rich tradition of understanding the divine presence as feminine in the Hebrew, the Shekinah, the presence of God that's tangible in the Holy of Holies in the temple as a feminine presence. Sophia, you've probably heard of as a feminine presence. And this Batkal is part of that, of that tradition. And it seems to be invoked by the description of Jesus' baptism. So, well, hey, that's interesting. I mean, it's, it's well known that Jesus experienced God as Abba, which is the Aramaic for dear father, but it's certainly less well known that in his baptism, the divine voice was an experience perhaps of the divine feminine. In, in Aramaic, the language of Jesus, a variant of Hebrew, the word for mother is Imma, so it's Abba, Emma, um, I thought for our Lord's Prayer today, we could um, incorporate this understanding by praying, Our Mother in Heaven, hallowed be your name, your good realm come, rather than kingdom, which is a masculine connotation. So maybe uh, Caroline will remind us of that before the Lord's Prayer. That would just to convey the sense that this is, this is in, in Scripture. You know, um, that famous painting by Rembrandt of the prodigal son, uh, where the, uh, the father the receiving father is receiving the prodigal son who's, who's just come, come back from being... It's a very interesting um, portrait because the left hand is the hand of a father, and that's the, that's the less dignified hand, and the right hand is a feminine hand. It's thought to be, it's more slender, it's thought to be the hand of the mother. So Rembrandt is kind of playing with this idea as well. What if you understood um, the presence of God as an experience of the divine feminine? Like, how would that settle with you? What might that be like? Does, Does that appeal to you? There's... There's a suggestion in the text that that's very much possible. Um, The other phrase that's really important here is, you are my beloved, in you I have delighted. In other words, when Jesus was baptized, before he had done anything, like he'd accomplished really nothing, in preparation for that public ministry, he's baptized, and it's a baptism for sinners. It's a baptism for sinners. He submits to that baptism, and what he receives in the batkal is the intense, unconditional acceptance or belonging of God that has a quality of delight in it. You know, um, my father had, had his issues and he was, he was um, irritable like all the time. And so he was naturally, reflexively critical. Uh, my mother was the opposite. I can barely remember 
my mother correcting me or criticizing me. Maybe the latter is um, uh, obvious in some of my behavior sometimes, but, but she was totally non-critical. And so it's, it's so natural for me to think of this presence of God coming in this way as having a feminine uh, quality to, to it based on my own experience. So the experience of God that Jesus conveys is this intimate acceptance, belonging, and delight. Do, do you remember when Ben, who's uh, sitting over here, uh, gave his uh, first sermon here at, at Blue Ocean, and he talked about his experience of growing up in his homeland that was intensely homophobic. I mean, intensely homophobic. And he was a gay, he's a gay man, and he comes to the United States, and he's part of a gay church in, in Georgia where the homophobia isn't so much an issue, but it's an all-white church, and it's blatantly racist. And it's like it just scrambled his brain like, this is a different God. This is like a, a different Jesus. And, and I think there's some truth to that. And in the midst of that, he talked about a sense, of the, a conviction that the Spirit put in his heart, and he expressed it by saying, go where you're celebrated. <laughs> go where you're celebrated. I remember when he said that, there was a response from the crowd in that, and that's that sense of delight that Jesus experienced in his baptism. So, if you're thinking about getting baptized on Easter, and, you know, that sounds appealing to you, that experience, I would invite you to think about um, submitting to this, the rite of baptism on Easter Sunday, uh, because it is, in Christian thinking, an immersion into Christ, and that, therefore, into the Spirit that Jesus experienced. So it's not dependent on you per se, it's you're being incorporated into Christ who had this experience and you get the overflow of that in baptism. That's scene number one. Scene number two is very different. It's the second half of Luke chapter four. I'm going to read verse one through four and nine through 13 so, so as not to take up too much time. And Jesus, full of a Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was guided in the wilderness by the Spirit, being tempted for 40 days by the slanderer. And during those days he ate nothing, and when they had reached their end, he was hungry. Okay. And the slanderer said to him, If you are God's son, command that this stone become a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered him, It's written that the man shall not live upon bread alone. And then there are a couple of other ones, and I'll just go to the last one because it's especially significant. Um, and he led him to Jerusalem and stood him upon the pinnacle of the temple, and he said, if you are God's son, cast yourself down from here. It's like he wants a scapegoating thing to happen. For it has been written that he shall command his angels concerning you to guard, keep you in all your ways, and that their hands will bear you up, that you may not strike your foot against the stone. He's quoting scripture there. And in re reply, Jesus said, it has been said, you shall uh, not put the Lord your God to the test. And being exhausted every temptation, the slanderer departed from him until an opportune time. So this is a tutorial in the work of the slander, the power of accusation that we've been talking about. Now, I think of what's going on in the wilderness experience, just to kind of demystify it a little bit, is it's very common when people take retreats. 
They take like a, I took a five-day retreat one time. And it was a silent, it was part of my spiritual direction class who broke off, I think, that graduated from the same program. And you had to take a five-day silent retreat. I mean, silent, completely silent. You're eating with people who are on silent retreat. So you're eating with people across the table and you're not saying a word. And you're silent the whole time. And, and I think the Pistons were in the playoffs and I <laughs> couldn't find out what was going on. And, and, but I noticed as the retreat went on that like my ordinary senses were just intensified. Like, I remember smelling some, um, there was some oil that had frankincense and myrrh, and I was sitting in the chapel and kind of thinking, and I was smelling this oil, and I was like, I was like, oh man, I was going into like a serious woo-woo state of like, oh my God, this smell is just amazing. Toward the end of the retreat, I'm sitting with a, with a nun. The only place for me to sit was with across from a younger nun at a two-table. And it was, it was kind of like intimate to be sitting with this nun. I'd never met her before. I think, she was, I think she was from Kenya, actually. And I had a piece of like institutional, um, like vanilla cake with lemon flavoring in it. And I bit into that cake and the lemon flavor was so intense. I just was like, oh my God. I was like, if, if the FDA knew, knew, or the Drug Enforcement Agency knew what happened in silent retreats, they would ban them. Because it was like, whoa, this is something else. Jesus was fasting for 40 days. He had no human contact. He was silent. He was walking through nature. He was having an intensification of sensory experience. And out of that intensification, his, his perception of the accusation that just circulates among human beings in this world kind of personified to him. And if you notice what is going on here, if the Holy Spirit that he experienced in baptism conveys acceptance, belonging, and the light, but this other spirit, the accusing spirit, brings the opposite. It's like disapproval, accusation, and a kind of scrutiny pressure. The experience of the accusing spirit is like insinuating, you know, it insinuates itself into you. It enters like an infection of the psyche. You experience a lying voice to the self from within the self about the self. That's the experience of this thing. And there's an obvious link to scapegoating, right? Any scapegoating event begins and spreads through accusation, spreading unconsciously by way of imitation through a crowd that morphs into a mob, if enough people don't object. So in the wilderness, it's as if Jesus is getting like a divine tutorial in how humans experience the power that drives scapegoating. It's the, the psychological warfare of scapegoating on the scapegoating, scapegoated. And this uh, accusing spirit has four qualities here. The accuser or the slander presents in religious garb. That's very significant. Wrapping its accusations in scripture. So, I mean, all the big oppressive movements that, that are around supremacy wrapped its accusation against black people in scripture. There was 
whole shtick about the, the descendants of Ham were destined for slavery as a punishment for God. And you, you'd, be, you'd be shocked at how popular that was not that long ago in churches. Um, certainly gender and sexual minorities uh, know how accusation is wrapped in a handful of scriptures. Um, women uh, experiencing oppression, um, you know, that's, that's used by the accuser wrapped in scripture to prove woman's uh, inferiority or the, the new phrase complementarity, which means you're equal in dignity, but you're unfit to govern like men. So it's just, it's all this, it's all this wrapping yourself in scripture. Jesus refutes with his own scripture, which I think is a, kind of fun. Secondly, the accuser sets up a false frame. You know how this works? Like this is a classic move of abusers. Abusers will always set up a false frame. So the accuser here says, if you are the son of God, then do this. So it's like, well, if you accept that frame, then Jesus has only one chance, choice, which is to do the thing, turn the stone into bread in order to prove that he's the son of God. There's a kind of scrutiny on the thing. All abusers do this. If you really love me, then you will forgive me for hitting you again. You know, you, you won't be so judgmental toward me. If you really love me, you will cover up my drinking and you'll call, call the office for me and tell them that I'm sick. It's a false frame. Jesus refutes this by just refusing to accept the false frame. He just, he just is not playing that game. And then third, the accuser makes superhero demands to earn acceptance. You notice that? Like turn the stone into jump off this cliff and, 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 you know, you'll be parachuted down by angels. It's like in order to prove that he is who he says he is, he has to do these like superhuman feats. You know, every minority knows what it's like to be under extra scrutiny, to prove yourself. That, like you have to get a 1600 on the SAT with, for the majority, like 1440 will do. <laughs> You know, women in male-dominated fields live with this every day. You have to perform at a higher level than your male peers to receive half the respect and the credit. And, you know, I read the Michelle Obama uh, memoir, and she just over and over again is describing the pressure she feels as a black woman to prove herself, like to do above and beyond in order to succeed in the white-dominated, white-collar uh, world. I, I had a conversation with an with a evangelical scholar when I was, had written my book on and changing my view on LGBT. Scott McKnight was his name. I'll tell you his name. And we're having dinner together. We were at a conference and he'd read the book and, you know, we're, we're, we got into it. We're going back and forth over Romans 1 and one thing and another and I'm challenging him and he's challenging me and it's a little bit testing and it's a little bit test and uh, tense and at the end he says well Ken if you're right and, and there really is a place for gay Christians accepted by God then this gay Christian movement should produce like fantastic theology and, and beautiful new worship music and at first I thought oh yeah that's right that sounds, that sounds right that sounds good 
And I thought, well, wait a minute. That, you mean you can just be an ordinary Christian and do the same old thing that you've been doing for years and you get to be excellent and wonderful? But the gay Christians have to develop this powerful new breakthroughs in theology and wonderful new worship music in order to prove themselves to you. This is just the same old, same old from the wilderness. Calm down. You're not talking to Scott McKnight now. <laughs> And then finally, the work of accusation is episodic. It comes and it goes, and it's opportunistic. You know that, and, and after having exhausted every temptation, the slander departed from him until an opportune time. It says, waiting for a vulnerable, another opportunity, another chance, and it comes very quickly. In the second half of chapter 4, Jesus' rejection by his village. And here's where you can use the, um, the text from your... Um, can I get a copy of that um, from somebody? That would be great. I'd like to just use this to read it. So I highlighted some points. Um, let me just read and comment as I go through this. It'll be a little quicker. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So this is his hometown. Nazareth is, you know, population maybe 400. And as was his, he was accustomed to do, he entered the synagogue on the day of the Sabbath and stood up to read. Jesus was an observant Jew. This is clear throughout the Gospels. And a scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. This would probably be the only scroll that was owned by this small synagogue. And having opened the scroll, he found the place where it was written. So it's possible Jesus was extra familiar with Isaiah. He quotes it a lot in his ministry because his hometown had an Isaiah scroll. A spirit of the Lord is upon me. Hence he has anointed me to announce good tidings to the destitute. He has sent me out to proclaim release of the captives and sight to the blind, to send the downtrodden forth in liberty to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He experienced this in baptism. He's not just keeping it to himself. He's saying, my job is to like spread this thing that I have experienced. And having closed the scroll and returning it to the attendant, he sat. That was the traditional um, kind of authoritative way to teach was sitting. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were gazing at him. That is an important thing because it suggests kind of a, a brewing scapegoating event. The word is like staring. The crowd is staring at him. You know when people don't like to stand up in front of crowds because crowds can be dangerous to individuals. And drawing the attention of a, of a crowd is something we instinctively don't want to have happen to us. I've noticed when people walk in front of the congregation during the service, they'll sometimes go like this. They don't want to draw the attention. And Jesus is drawing the attention of the crowd, but there's something weird about the attention. They're staring at him. You know, women know what the male gaze is all about. It's a dominance thing. Or a minority person knows what it is to like be walking in an all-white area and just feel like under extra scrutiny. Or imagine being a transgender person and going into the bathroom of your identity rather than your birth and the kind of scrutiny you feel yourself to be under. This is the gaze, it seems here. 
And he began by saying to them, Today in your ears this scripture has been fulfilled. Holy smokes, that's something. (laughs) And here's a weird part. And all professed their admiration for him and were amazed at the words of grace coming out of his mouth. And they said, Is this man not Joseph's son? So you have this weird combination of admiration and acclaim, but underneath it there's like a questioning. Wait a minute. Isn't this just Joseph's son? It's, it's showing the complicated dynamics how a crowd can just morph, turn on a dime into a mob. And Jesus is sensing this, and you see it in his response. He said to them, surely you will quote this parable, physician, heal yourself. The things we heard were happening in Capernaum, do them here as well in our native country. So he had started to do his healing in Capernaum, and the homies were like, we're entitled to see some messianic wonders here because we're hometown, and he was not going to yield an inch to that sense of entitlement, and he senses that, that there's a rivalry between Capernaum and Nazareth, and he's like expected to deliver the goods that he gave to Capernaum in Nazareth, and he's just not playing that game, and he said, amen, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. That's a long Jewish tradition. No prophet is accepted in his own country. And I tell you, in truth, truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was sealed up over three years and six months as a great famine took place over the land. And none of them was Elijah sent except to a widowed woman of Serapata in Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel during the time of Elisha the prophet. None of them were cleansed except many men the Syrians. So he's like going right against their sense of entitlement. And all the synagogue were filled with rage. So this is the crowd has turned into a mob. When they heard these things, and rising up, they drove him outside the city and led him to the edge of the mountain on which their city was built so as to throw him down. It's a scapegoating event. But he passed through their midst and went away. So, okay. (laughs) Okay. This is a great foreboding of what's to come, isn't it? And, but it leads to the final thing, and there's a poignancy to the final scene. It's in Luke chapter 8, verse 19 to 21. Um, eight, nine. And his mother and brothers came to him and were unable to come near to him because of the crowd. He was teaching, the people were gathered around. And it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But in reply, Jesus said to them, my mother and my brothers are those hearing the word of God and doing it. And we know from, I think it's in Mark's gospel, Mark adds a very important detail to this, which is his mothers and brothers were coming because they thought he was out of his mind and they wanted to take control of him. This was an intervention that was being planned. You know, many of our gay members have either friends or you know about a family being concerned about your sexuality. Maybe you're 15 years old or 16 years old and they organize an intervention. This has happened all over this country. This is very much the similar dynamic of what Jesus is experiencing. And you've got to ask yourself, how did that happen? 
Like how did his mother and his brothers, who eventually be, were followers and, and were like almost idealized in the tradition later, how was it that they came to this place of rejecting their own son? Mary in Luke is getting all this stuff from the Spirit about her son and what he's to be and all that kind of stuff. Well, scapegoat theory gives us a very simple answer. They, they were part of the Nazareth village. And they unconsciously absorbed the view of their small village and their synagogue. It was unconscious. They, they, they weren't deciding to do it. It was happening mimetically, Girard would say, through this unconscious way that we imitate the people around us. Jesus experienced that. So to quickly summarize these four scenes, after receiving the Spirit, the voice of acceptance, belonging, and delight, Jesus receives a tutorial on the power that drives scapegoating, um, all the oppression of a majority on a minority, so he could thereby vividly distinguish between the voice of acceptance and the insinuating voice of accusation. And to announce his mission, he offers this same spirit. He says, my job is to give this spirit to everyone. And this provokes a backlash, foreshadowing his eventual embrace of the scapegoat role. And all of this affected Jesus in a deeply personal way as it was unfolding. In a deeply personal way as even his own family mirrored the rejection of his village and his home church, so to speak. And he found himself for a period of time isolated from them. So what's the takeaway from all this? Well, the takeaway is, what a friend we have in Jesus. You know, what a friend we have in Jesus. You know, when we're, when we're going through some difficult period... You know, one of the most isolating things about suffering is that often the people around us just don't get it, what we're going through. And when you're going through a period of intense suffering and you have even one friend who gets it, oh my gosh, that friend is so, so precious to you. What a friend we have in Jesus. And I went to uh, uh, University of Michigan, had a, a school of social work thing, their LGBT class. Um, uh, Betsy Williams put me on to this. And I, I went to, they had like a display of all their projects. And one of the projects was based on research that the mental health outcomes for LGBTQ people in non-supportive settings are significantly improved by the presence of one supportive ally. One supportive ally close to you makes a world of difference for people under scapegoating pressure. One supportive ally really increases your resilience. Who wouldn't want to be a supportive ally? I want to be a supportive ally. That's just what a, what a powerful thing to be. So Jesus is both the victim of scapegoating who stands in solidarity with us and he is also our powerful ally. And the power of the ally is what he received at baptism 
in the bat call. He experienced God as his ally. Acceptance, belonging, delight. So the, the spiritual task of the ally and the spiritual task of those undergoing scapegoating pressure is the same, to receive the divine presence, acceptance, belonging, and delight. Let's close with a meditation. Let's take a few minutes. I'll just guide you through the meditation. You might want to start by taking a couple of deep breaths and relax. Jesus, we know, that was a kind of a nature mystic. He would experience God speaking to him through nature. That's where the parables come from, the nature parables. And I'm going to kind of continue a similar theme that Emily began last week in, in inviting you to imagine yourself walking through a forest. So you're walking by yourself through a forest. It's a cloudy day. And the forest canopy makes it even darker, as happens sometimes in a thick forest. And as you're in there for a while, it feels kind of damp and chilly. You're not quite warmly dressed enough. And you're pursued by like tiny stinging gnats that operate in the shadows and avoid the light. So there you are walking through the forest. You're feeling like, oh, am, how, what's my way out of this forest? You're, you're starting to feel that uncomfortable feeling of being maybe a little bit lost in there, lost your bearings. And just at then, just ahead, you see the picture, you, um, you see a patch of sunlight that is streaming through an opening in that thick canopy of leaves. And now you approach the patch of sunlight and you see it's like a spacious but also kind of a cozy opening. It's about 12 feet by 12 feet, say. And so you step into that opening now. You know, underfoot there's that soft carpet of pine needles, kind of brownish color, coppery. And there's just a light sprinkling of ferns. And as you enter that space, um, you notice, oh, those stinging gnats don't follow you. And you have this feeling of relief as you soak in the light and the warmth. And after you're there for a little bit, you notice such a contrast, not only in your physical surroundings, but in your mood, your internal outlook. So the, the clarity, the warmth, the absence of those gnats makes you realize that while you were walking through the chilly dark section of the forest feeling maybe the growing anxiety of maybe being lost your mind was assailed by accusing thoughts you felt under a weird pressure or scrutiny you now realize you'd completely normalized to those thoughts as your very own but in this clearing they feel so separate from you now so you decide to just take a minute to soak in your new surroundings. And you just do that in your imagination. See the light shining through the trees, forming a kind of a cone around you of light and warmth. 
Feel the warmth on your skin taking away that chill. Notice the colors of the green leaves of the tree and the ferns on the, on the floor and the pine needles beneath your feet and it's beautiful. And just let the words that Jesus experienced in his baptism kind of appear in your mind's eye. Acceptance, belonging, delight. Just take a little time with those words. Acceptance, belonging, delight. When you open your eyes, you get your bearings. Ahead you see a landmark you recognize close to where you parked your car. And there's a path to find your way out. And it's a whole different day. Let's join me in a closing prayer. What a friend we have in you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, who settled on Jesus in the Jordan River, settle on us. Drive out the voice of accusation that perhaps we have considered a normal part of our thoughts. Help us to distinguish your spirit from the feeling of scrutiny, the pressure, and the accusing thoughts around us and in us. Make us a channel of your spirit to bring acceptance, belonging, and delight to the people around us. Amen.